0: Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pearce. Policy Forum Pod is produced at Crawford School, the region's leading graduate policy school. You can find out more about us at crawford.anu.edu.au. And I am delighted today to be joined by a stellar cast of co-hosts and panellists here. So, first of all, I'd like to welcome Professor Sharon Bessel. Uh, Sharon is a professor here at Crawford School. She's the ANU lead of the Individual Deprivation Measure Project, and she's also editor of Policy Forum's Poverty in Focus section. Hello, Sharon. How are you?
2: Hi, Matt, and I'm really well.
0: Uh, next, I'd like to welcome Paul Vervele. Paul is a postdoc here at Crawford School. He's formerly the general manager of the FE2W network, uh, and he was managing editor of the Global Water Forum. Welcome back, Paul.
3: G'day, Martin. How you
0: going? I'm um, good. How are you?
3: Very relaxed.
0: Very relaxed. Next up is Yulia uh, Ahrens. Yulia is, as uh, regular listeners will know, a presenter for Policy Forum Pod. She's also a marketing communications coordinator, coordinator here at Crawford School and an associate researcher at the European Institute for Asian Studies in Brussels. How are you, Yulia?
4: I'm pretty well. I'm really excited to be on the other side today.
0: Yeah, it is really exciting, isn't it? And last but certainly not least, drumroll, because we've got a very special guest with us here today. I'd like to welcome Jody Lee Trembath. Uh, Jody is a PhD scholar at the School of Culture, History and Language here at the ANU, but she's also presenter and magic editor of the br- brilliant Familiar Strange blog and podcast. Hello, Jody. Hello, Martin. It's very exciting to have you here. Are you excited to be in the Policy Forum Pod studios?
1: I am so excited to be in this very funky studio, which is so different to the studio we record in. So it's it's a whole new world.
0: It's a whole new world. Now, before we get started with our very special Ask Us Anything episode, don't forget that there are still spots available on our Facebook pod gang. If you want exclusive insights into what's going on behind the scenes, you want to chat to other listeners and our presenters, then come join us. Just type Policy Forum Pod into the search bar. So, today on our special 100th episode of Policy Forum Pod, we're going to have a crack at your questions. For the past two weeks we've been putting out calls to you, our listeners, to ask us anything from serious, hard-hitting policy questions to funny or the seriously weird, and you have given us plenty to choose from. We don't want to spoil the discussion too much, but we're going to be having a look at a huge range of topics from the 2020 US elections, a more climate-conscious future, to whether sweet corn on pizza is acceptable or completely deranged, and I saw that on our Facebook Podcast group. That was a hot topic this week. Uh, For some of your policy related questions, we went out to uh, some of the experts from around ANU. So you're also going to hear from people like Mark Kenny, Richard Rigby, Liz Allen. Paul Burke and uh, uh, Leo Dobbs and Quentin Grafton. So listeners, lean back, put on your headphones and take a listen to what our panelists have to say. But before we get to that, a reminder that we are really keen to get your thoughts, your comments and your questions. You can reach us on Twitter, where we're Apps Policy Forum. You can find us on Facebook, join the Policy Forum Pod group, or you can just email us, go old school. We're podcast at policyforum.net. All right. So let's crack on with these questions. We've roughly sort of divided them up into politics and policy and some sort of general knowledge stuff and... Uh, Some of these questions have been put to us on the podcast group. Some have come to us via Twitter. But we've also sent our roving reporter, Branco out to get some questions from people around Canberra and also to get some responses from some of the academics around ANU. So the first question, uh, this was a written question. Kim wanted to know, with the US election coming in 2020, what do you think? Is Donald Trump going to be re-elected. So perhaps I might put this question to you, Sharon. What do you reckon about that?
2: I think this is actually a really hard one to call. Um, I would like to say no, there is no possibility of Donald Trump being elected. But I did say that during the campaign for his first election and he was elected, I think that the interesting thing about Donald Trump is that for his supporters, um, it does seem that he is achieving some of the things that he promised he would achieve, and that's one of the points of disillusionment with politics, that politicians promise all kinds of things and then they don't follow through. And where Trump is not delivering, um, he can point the finger at others. So around the wall, um, which many of us would see as a, a great debacle, you know, Trump's position would be that he is doing all he can to fulfil that promise and others are stymieing him. So for his support base, it actually looks as though he's trying to deliver on what he promised. Um, he's also the master of spin and he's the master at creating an echo chamber where he is able to lead and control the discourse. Um, and despite the criticism, despite the concerns and despite the real facts, um, he's able to manipulate very, very well. So I, I think alarmingly there is perhaps a good chance that he may well be
0: re-elected. That's a slightly bleak take. Paul, what do you reckon?
3: Well, uh, I think it really depends upon who the Democrats put up as uh, the opposing candidate and assuming that Trump doesn't have to go through a primary for the Republican nomination. I think it all comes down to authenticity. And the thing that Trump managed to do is come across as being authentic uh, and being able to sell a vision uh, to people. Now, you can say what you like about that vision and 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 what and who this particular demographic is that it's appealing to and, and who it doesn't appeal to. But it comes across as authentic. And I think that's the most important thing for politicians today is authenticity.
0: Yeah. So the general take around the table seems to be that, yes, Donald Trump probably will be reelected. So thanks for that question, Kim. Next, I want to move on to a question from Destiny, um, who wrote to us, In light of the federal budget, should ACT-based university graduates reconsider aiming for a public service position? Now, this makes me think of the discussion that we had last week. Uh, around this. Perhaps I'll turn to you, Jodie. What's your take on this?
1: Well, from a federal budget perspective, I couldn't say for sure. But I would certainly say that there's a lot of research around public service motivation. And it doesn't seem like a very good time in history to be fulfilling a public service motivation. Public service motivation is the idea that you go into a particular role in order to serve the public with pro-social intentions. And The research shows that a lot of the time the public servants don't really get to see the results of what they are actually trying to achieve and that is extremely demotivating. So I think it really depends on what your intention is when you are going into a public service role. If you really want to see the good you're trying to do in the world, maybe public service isn't good for you right now.
0: Oh, that's a slightly bleak take as well, but yeah, no, it's good. Well, look, I, I, I'm i happy to have a go at this because I think, Destiny, that um, uh, the public service needs people who want to change the world for the better. Um, so I think in light of the federal budget or any other uh, mitigating factors, uh, if you feel like you can make a positive difference, then absolutely, the public service is, uh, is a is a good place to be, regardless of what's, what's going on. So the next question I want to turn to is an audio question, which is from Scott. Let's have a listen to that.
5: I was wondering whether
3: the federal budget will be a win going into the election to the Liberals or not.
0: Well, that's a good question. And we went out around ANU and put this question to someone who knows this stuff better than most. It was Mark Kenny from the ANU Australian Studies Institute. Let's have a listen to what Mark had to say.
6: Well, the government certainly hopes so, but the uh, the question is really um, going to be determined by the voters at the election. Certainly, going into this election, the early signs are from news poll that uh, the budget's gone down. Well, I think it's been a fairly conservative but nonetheless measured budget. So, I think it's uh, doing uh, good things for the government's record given where it's been in the past. But um, how long will voters remember it? That's the that's the real test. We're going into a, a long and I, th- I think probably very intense election campaign. And it's going to be interesting to see whether people think much about the budget by the time they get into the uh, polling booth.
0: So that was Mark Kenny there. Those were his thoughts. Sharon, let me turn to you. What do you make of that question and maybe Mark's response there?
2: Look, I, th- I think Mark's right. It depends what is in but uh, voters' minds as they actually go to, to vote. But what I find really interesting about this budget is the extent to which it was designed to win an election. You know, as it is carefully thought through. Um, it is, as Mark points out, quite measured. But it's an Insta-budget. You know, it's, it's like a photograph that's dev- designed for Instagram. It's crafted in a particular way to get a headline. And this really worries me. Because I think it's indicative of something that's happening in politics in Australia, but also more broadly, where the idea of medium and certainly long-term planning seems to be overshadowed entirely by the immediate politics of the situation and by winning the next election. And I think this budget is a really powerful example of that. And of course, the government wants to be re-elected. But when budgets and policies and the entire engagement with the policy process and the political process is around winning the next election, then I think we have a real problem in terms of the medium and long-term future of the country.
0: All right. Now, let's turn to a slightly more positive question, perhaps. Uh, We had a question from Anya, who wrote, Jacinda Arden has been winning hearts worldwide. If you could select a current foreign political leader as Australia's next prime minister, who would you pick and why? I'm going to turn to you first, Jodie. Who would you pick and why?
1: I mean, if I was going to marry one of them, it would be Jacinda Ardern. I mean, everybody wants to marry Jacinda Ardern, right? It would be a very
0: long queue, I think.
1: I think so, and my husband wouldn't be very happy about it, so sorry. Uh, but I'd have to say, actually, Katrin Jakob's daughter, who's the Prime Minister of Iceland, who I just think is equally as amazing. They are so progressive in Iceland. She uh, believes strongly in the power of research and intellectualism. She's kind of the antidote to the anti intellectual environment that the rest of the world seems to be going through. I, I love her.
0: Lots of interesting stuff happening in Iceland. What do you reckon about this, Julia?
4: I think I I would agree with Jodie on that. And also because I think when we think about women in politics or good good or great leaders in politics more generally, we do tend to look at the big countries and the most important countries on the world stage, but we don't tend to think about so much about the small countries. And just as Jodie said, Iceland is a fantastic example of that. They seem to be light years ahead in terms of gender equality and public discourse on gender equality. And when we look to uh, New Zealand, and that's something that stood out for me when I was going through my newsfeed in the morning, suddenly the world was looking at New Zealand. And that was such a fascinating thing to see in Germany. There was so much reporting about how great it is to have such a empathetic leader who's taking such a different approach to dealing with Such a horrific incident. So I think, um, yes, Jacinda Ardern and the leader of Iceland would probably be out there for me as well.
0: Are there any other nominations from around the table? Sharon?
2: Well, I don't actually have any nominations, but I did want to make a point on women in politics. As you know, when we think about Jacinda Ardern and we're all very carefully saying the Prime Minister of Iceland because I'm certainly nervous about trying to pronounce her name. Jody, you did that beautifully. Oh, um, but <laughs> when we look at those two leaders, I think what it does demonstrate is the importance of different perspectives in politics and different leadership styles. And the argument has been made through research and through advocacy for decades, that women's leadership is really important because it brings something different. And I think in both of those examples, we see that playing out. And so it's not about women being better leaders or men being better leaders, but it's about the importance of different leadership styles and how that can really contribute. So I think they're both great examples, but I think it also speaks to the importance of women in leadership.
0: So, but so far around the table, we've only got one nomination. Paul, who would you uh, nominate for this?
3: Well, my nomination, I guess it's a bit of an obvious one, but my nomination would be uh, Mayor Stubbs uh, from uh, Talkeetna in, in Alaska, which as many of your, your listeners would know, has been in power for about 20-odd years now. <laughs> many of our listeners would know that. Yes. And uh, the thing that he's done is that he, he's put together this vision for – his constituents, and they, they have a very they, – they know that he has a vested interest in the community, strategic, good decision maker, and he's also a cat. Uh, he's a cat. He, he's also a cat, yes. And I, I think that in Australia, what we could – we could really think about the things that cats could provide to our democracy. You imagine question time. Yes. Um, you could imagine Senate estimates. Uh, yeah, I think strategy, decisiveness, and long-term vision. I look Can I
1: change my vote? <laughs>
2: Can I ask if he's a real cat or if he's a person in a cat suit?
3: No, he's a real cat.
2: That's fabulous.
0: I look, as a dog person, I find this discussion fairly troubling, <laughs> I've got to say.
2: Yeah, I'm a dog person too. But I have a dog that's a lot like a cat, so she could be perfect.
0: All right, so... Uh Thank you for your responses there. And thanks to uh, Ania for that great question there. So now let's move into uh, some specific policy issues. And we had a question from Mitty who asked, what are some tangible examples of where policy research, as opposed to as opposed to Coombs or Shergold-style Shergold reviews, have changed practices in Australia? I'm going to turn to you, Sharon. I'm going to put you on the spot. What are some tangible examples of where policy research has changed practices?
2: So this is the opportunity to say, well, there's there are a number of research projects, Martin, that I've been involved in that have changed, banks, but I'm not sure I can make that claim. But one example that I would give that I find really interesting is the work that has been done by I think it's fair to say a multitude of researchers around what it is that best supports children. And this has been done in Australia um, and globally um, across a number of disciplines. And in Australia, ARACI, which is um, the Research Alliance for Children and Young People, has developed what they call the NEST, which is a way of thinking about um, the the approach, their communities, their governments... Um, that civil society organisations can take to supporting children and they have a number of domains. One of those domains is love and support. Now, the idea of legislating for love or building policy for love is is a really curious idea um, and one that lots of people would reject. But for children, it really matters. And so this has been picked up in a number of places. But in Tasmania, for example, the state government's plan for young people includes a domain around love and safety, which is based on that work that ERAC has done, which is based on the work of many, many researchers. Um, And so this isn't actually about legislating for love, but it is about saying we need to take seriously the contexts in which children live and in which they grow up and how they can be supported. And that's not just around a bureaucracy. That's around, you know, building connections that matter for children. So I actually think that's a powerful and beautiful example of the way in which research that at some level may not seem very policy relevant, has actually started to reshape the way policymakers and governments think about their approach to and engagement with children.
0: That's great. That's a very interesting example. Paul, what about you? Can you think of any uh, tangible examples where policy research has uh, changed practices?
3: Well, Mun, we're here at the Crawford School and the gold standard uh, for this type of thing is Bruce Chapman and his work uh, His work on hex. And this was at the time when the Hawke government was looking at, in the late 80s, was looking at how they could extend access to higher education in an affordable way. And Bruce worked very closely uh, on establishing uh, income contingent loans. And I believe he's now looking at extending that to other parts of the world.
0: So two really good examples there of how uh, policy can change practices. Um, Many thanks for your question, Mitzi, and thanks for your responses. So the next one is in relation to an article that was on Policy Forum about 18 months ago now, and it was written by the Crawford School director, Helen Sullivan. Um, And it's a question from Serena. Let's have a listen to what Serena had to say.
1: My question is, is there more room for women in policy since Helen Sullivan's article from 2017, Making Room for Women in Policy?,
0: well, that's a very good question, Serena. So let's hear directly from the author of the piece herself. Here's Helen Sullivan and how she responded to your question. Uh,
5: well, like everything, uh, there's been ups and downs. So, um, yes, there's certainly more room for women in policy in that the issue is now regularly talked about and um, we're much more used to seeing um Powerful senior women as heads of departments, for example, in in Australia, um, but also in in other uh, walks of life. At the same time, uh, I think there's been uh, a shift uh, politically, so we're getting back into an era of uh, the strong man, if you like, political leader. Um, the the light. Uh, there, I think, is of course Jacinta Ardern in New Zealand, who's given us a completely different way of being a, a leader of politics and and therefore a leader of policy. So, um, I think, I think it would be accurate to say that this is an issue that is now uh, considered to be. Um, a question that must be answered, uh, that it's not something that can be dismissed in the way that it perhaps was even quite recently. Um, And one would hope, for example, that the experience Julia Gillard had would not be repeated. But um, at the same time, uh, I think we are seeing some uh, polarizing factors in politics, which means that um, it's both more necessary for for women um, to put themselves forward, but also perhaps more difficult.
0: So thanks for that answer Helen and thanks for the question Serena. Now the next is uh from from our Facebook podcast group it's from Mark Zanka, who is a friend of the pod. He asks the question is the water market delivering appropriate social outcomes in Australia, given the Commonwealth's purchase of the Webster Limited water licence that resulted in a one-off profit of thirty-five million for that corporation? Should we be persevering with this market? Now, for this, we ask occasional uh, podcast guest um, Crawford's water policy expert Professor Quentin Grafton for his thoughts on this one. And we won't be able to read out the full very detailed answer that he gave, but we'll post it later on our Facebook Pod group. So don't forget to check that out. Anyway, so Quentin said in response to your question Mark, the water market in the Murray-Darling Basin is one of the largest in the world with the value of water entitlement worth about $16 billion. By most measures, the market works well in that it is reasonably competitive and in times of drought, prices for water allocations rise that give signals to farmers to conserve water. Farmers who cannot make a profit growing rice when the price of water is $500 per million litres sell their water to some other irrigator who can. Thus, the water market helps both buyers and sellers of water, especially in times of drought. Sadly, inequitable social outcomes related to water would exist whether or not water were traded, namely who got the water entitlements and who did not. Notably missing from the free allocation of water licenses from decades ago, that eventually were converted into water entitlements were Australia's first peoples, yet they made extensive use of the basin water resources for their livelihood as well as cultural practices. So thanks for that response, Quentin, and thanks for the question, Mark. We've got another question from Mark, actually, who uh, asks, competition policy seems not to have worked in the electricity sector. If its objective is to drive down prices, has the time come to rethink the principles of the national electricity market? Now, as the economist in the room, I'm going to turn to you, Paul. What do you think about that?
3: Okay. Well, thanks. Thanks, Martin. Thanks, Mark, for the question. Uh, I think it's really useful to thinking about principles, what the overriding principle is that governs uh, the design and the regulation of of the national electricity market. And that's the national electricity objective, which I helpfully have here in front of me. And it's stated in the national electricity law as to promote efficient investment in and efficient operation and use of electricity services For the long-term interests of consumers of electricity with respect to price, quality, safety, and reliability and security of supply of electricity, and the reliability, safety, and security of the national electricity system. Now, we don't need to break all of that down, but it's very, very clear that in terms of principles, we're focused on efficiency in terms of how that can deliver better outcomes for customers, and how we can deliver that in terms of lower prices for customers. and and secure access to the network as well. So I think the principles are fine. Uh, Obviously, we're going for an energy transition, which uh, is a very, very complex thing to deal with. New technology is coming in. But again, to repeat what I said before, what we need in order to drive efficient investment and for investors to have confidence is we need appropriate policy frameworks. And that means that we need energy policy that can provide certainty for investment. We need climate change policy so that investors know that, oh, maybe in 10 years' time, is there going to be a carbon price and do we know what that's going to be? And that's the really important thing. So I think, yes, there are some issues in terms of how the market was set up, how you can have generators, uh, companies that are both generators and retailers and can exert some market power. And there are a whole range of different ways in which the market could be improved to address our emerging challenges. But fundamentally, I think the principles are correct. Great. Well, thanks for the question. Thanks for that,
0: Paul. So the next one is we've got a question from Josh who asks, how realistic is the plan to reach the electric vehicle sales target of 50% by 2030 in order to reduce greenhouse gas Emissions when we know that a shift from petrol could cost a lot of fuel revenue. And we went out and we spoke to Crawford's professor Paul Berg to give his expert opinion on this very question. Let's have a listen to that.
6: It's
3: realistic. Norway has achieved it already, and we have 11 years from now until 2030 to catch them up. Australia could definitely do it. Technology adoption, for example, electric vehicles can happen really quickly once things get moving. Think of the iPhone or many other technologies. Remember, electric vehicles are fantastic products. They're great to drive, and the prices for electric vehicles are dropping quickly. Yeah, there'll be a loss of fuel excise to the budget as a result of this transition. But that's no reason to slow this transition down. There are lots of alternative ways to raise revenue for the budget.
0: So those were Paul's thoughts. Uh, let me turn to you, Julia. What do you think about that?
4: I'm kind of glad that Paul's so positive about this because uh, he's made a comparison with Norway, and I actually saw that in the news as well. And it's the first time that actually few uh, car sales for electric vehicles in Norway have overtaken the ones for fuel um, fuel-fueled. <laughs> Car, um, vehicles but I have to say probably, I don't know if, if, if it's my inner pessimist, um, Norway is a significantly smaller country than Australia and I think one of the biggest challenges um, for getting the sales up for electric vehicles is also the infrastructure and the charging stations for these kinds of vehicles. So I wonder if uh, how long it will take us to provide that infrastructure for cars in Australia and that will probably be a bigger challenge than in Norway.
0: Sharon, do you drive an electric car?
4: No, I don't. I I would if
2: I thought about it properly, I think. But I think when you think about would you drive an electric car as well, where's the electricity coming from and is that clean electricity or not? Is it prior question. Um And I think in Norway, I mean, Norway is, it's a very small population, but it is quite a large country. It's a vast country. But maybe what's different about Norway is the extent to which there has been a focus on infrastructure, um, be it roads, although the roads in Norway are generally pretty poor um, compared with somewhere like Australia. But health infrastructure, education infrastructure have been a real focus in Norway. So there is that history of actually investing in infrastructure in rural and remote areas. Much more so, I think, than in Australia. Well,
0: that's a great question. Many thanks for that, Josh. Now the next is a question from Howard. Let's have a listen to this.
3: Is a faster high speed rail model viable in Australia as a as a transit solution for an infrastructure project? Is three hundred and fifty kilometers per hour fast enough, or does that restrict the project to pretty much only being in the south in the corridor between Melbourne and Sydney?
0: Great question, Howard. Many thanks for that. I'm personally very excited about a future of uh, high-speed rail. But we went out and we spoke to Crawford's uh, Dr. Leo Dobbs to give us his thoughts. Leo's an expert in cost-benefit analysis and looks a lot at these large transport infrastructure projects. Now, Leo wrote to us, while the concept of a high-speed rail model for Australia may well be attractive, it's not possible to give a definitive answer regarding its merits. The population of the origin and destination cities are obviously important variables that need to be taken into account, but the alternative of air transport and the relative prices of tickets on high-speed rail and aircraft would also be important in determining actual usage, as would the value of travel time. Uh, In order to gain an informed view, a rigorous cost benefit analysis would first need to be carried out. Such an analysis should include factors such as the route followed, the cost of land resumed to build the tracks, any externalities such as cutting down trees or reducing native wildlife, reductions in emissions by aircraft if more people travel by high-speed rail and so on. However, no detailed analysis appears to be currently available
2: what a sensible response from Leo suggesting that we should make decisions based on some knowledge and some evidence rather than the whim of the day
0: I th- I mean I think that's absolutely right, but I also think i I, I come from London, which is a city which is where most people move around on a day-to-day basis by the underground. And I wonder today, if they were building an underground from scratch, whether they would end up with such a widespread and complex system if they based it purely on a cost-benefit analysis. I think at some point, you know, you, you, yes, you need to look at the figures. Absolutely, that's very important. Um, but at some point, you need to say, well, you know, this is a mode of transport that we want to move to. There are benefits to society in having this.
2: But I, think the, I do think the way Leo is framing When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. A cost-benefit analysis there is broader than you know we might traditionally understand, and you could build into that kind of analysis exactly the sort of things you're talking about, Martin. Much harder to quantify or put a dollar figure on, but it is possible to do an assessment um, that includes a social assessment of what do we want our society to look like and what our values are. But it's a structured way or a systematic way of actually bringing together the various possibilities, the evidence that we have, the vision of what we want, and actually making some informed decisions rather than perhaps being driven by the next election.
0: Great. Okay. So many thanks for that question, Howard. Uh, so the next is a question from Alex.
5: What would they have for Australia to be more climate conscious in the future and what policies do they think could be put in place to kind of enforce that more quickly than
1: is being done at the moment.
0: So in case you couldn't hear that, what Alex asked was, what are your recommendations for Australia to be more climate conscious in the future and what policies should be put in place to make sure it would go more quickly than it is at the moment? I'm going to turn to you with this, Paul. What do you reckon?
3: Well, Alex, that's that's a great question. Uh, In terms of recommendations... I'm gonna sound like a broken record here, but I think it starts with having a target. Nationally thinking about where it is that we wanna go. Now the states, uh, generally most of the states and territories apart from Western Australia and the Northern Territory, they have a target to have net zero emissions by 2050. So maybe the time has come to start to think about at a national level what sort of target we want to have. Now the next thing you need after that is you need some leadership, political leadership on developing a strategy on how, as a country, we can get there, the transformations that are required in industry and how we live our lives, and also an honest conversation about what it's going to take. And that's not just about costs, which is usually the discussion in Australia. It's also about what the benefits of that transition would be. In terms of how to put the policies in place, uh, I'm a bit biased here. But I think carbon pricing has a very, very strong role to play. And there are a few additional elements to having a carbon price. One is potentially to have it as a revenue neutral or to think about the other resources that you need to make it a just transition for people who are working, say, in coal communities in coal in Western Australia, where I'm from, or who are working in other industries and might be affected by rising prices. But the other thing, too, is to have some independence, Uh, in terms of how the policy is implemented, something like a commission or a board, like the Reserve Bank of Australia, uh, to manage the changes in the price over time.
0: Jodie, let me turn to you with that. Have you got any thoughts about this?
1: Yeah, I would just say that, I mean, Alex points out that things aren't moving very quickly in Australia at the moment and I think that there's two kind of dual-pronged reasons for that. On the one hand, I think a lot of Australians don't really see climate change as something that is relevant to them or is really their um, direct responsibility. And then on the other hand, I think that... I'm an anthropologist, right, so I don't want to say human nature because I don't believe in human nature ultimately. But I think that many people do take the path of least resistance in most situations and things like recycling are really complicated in Australia. It's hard to know actually whether you're doing it right or not and I think people, and that's just an example, but I think people give up a lot of the time because they're not sure whether they're having any impact and it's a lot of effort for very little visible results and so I think things are going to continue moving slowly while those two uh, dual issues are still in play.
0: So the next question we got from Shayla, who writes, can we expect overcrowding of Australia's big cities to ease after permanent immigration cuts and the new regional visa? What do you think about the government's plan to encourage both Australian and international students to study in regional Australia with the plan to invest more in scholarships? It's a great question, Shayla, And we went out and spoke to Dr. Liz Allen from the ANU Centre for Social Research and Methods. And let's have a listen. To what Liz had to say,
7: the answer is no. Uh, the government has uh, outlined uh, what they're calling a population policy, which is probably the most earnest scheme, I guess you could say, that we've we've seen for quite some time in Australia. But it doesn't uh, the the population, but the population policy that was introduced only only recently, fails to address the issues that underpin Australia's uh, congestion in our, in our main cities. And that is that we have failing and inadequate infrastructure that uh, has been really neglected over quite a substantial amount of time. And that's due to what's been occurring at a state and territory level, but also at a federal level. So until we address the real driver of congestion in our cities, and that is infrastructure failures um we're not going to see any real impact in 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 our in our cities the other thing too is that if we look at the drivers of why people move to particular locations if we look at uh sydney melbourne and brisbane people are going there for opportunities they're going there for work for for uh for education and the like most of those opportunities are along our our eastern our eastern coast, so people are maximizing their potential um by by locating there, and that's what we would want. We want people to to succeed we want people to do well so best idea is to position yourself um with the potential to to do
1: well to succeed
0: so there you go. you heard Liz Allen's thoughts, and many thanks to Liz for her time there. Jody, what do you make of all this?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's not an area that I'm super uh, well versed on, and I'm inclined to defer to Liz's expertise on that one. But I do think that the idea of building up uh, regional Australia by having various incentives in place to get particularly young people moving into rural areas is fantastic. Because really, why do people not want to move into rural areas, particularly young people? Because They don't think there are other young people there to hang out with and there's not going to be anything going on. So the more you get young people out there, the more that will be happening. And I think turning regional Australia into uh, and having many more hubs is actually only going to be to the good.
0: As someone who lives in rural and regional Australia myself, I'm all for people being encouraged to live there. Sharon, what do you make of it? Yeah, I think there's
2: a flip side to the point that Jody makes and that is keeping young people in small towns. Um and I've been doing some research um That is an international research project but we're working in Tasmania in Australia Um, and that research is looking at the decisions that young people make um, about whether to stay in the small towns that they've grown up in or whether to leave and across the five countries that we're working in and certainly in Australia what we're seeing is that young people often don't have a choice if they want to pursue their education, if they want even a job, not even a career, then they need to leave. And the research that we've been doing suggests that a lot of those young people leave against their will. You know, they would really much prefer to stay or they would like to go and experience the world and then come back. But that's often not an option. And it really is around the opportunities that, that are available to young people. But there is often a desire to stay in place, but not the, the possibility to do so.
0: So many thanks for that question, Sheila. That was terrific. And now we've got a question from Marie. I've got to say, I love this question. So let's have a listen to what she has to say.
4: My question is, do you think the Australian government should be able to facilitate um, people whose first language isn't English in our Government services and agencies.
0: Now I love this question because Australia thinks of itself as a multicultural society. Um, yet everything in our bureaucracy is English language. I'm going to turn to the anthropologist in the room for this. What do you what's your response to Marie's question there, Jody?
1: Yeah, absolutely. If we are wanting to be in multicultural society, then we absolutely need to facilitate multiple cultures. I think the real question is Do we, and I say we, meaning the whole of Australia, want to be a multicultural society? And I'm not sure that in our current political climate, that that is what you would say Australia wants. It's what I want. It's what most of the people I know want. But I don't think we would be in the political situation we are if it was as cut and dried as that. So, yes, uh, to answer Marie's question, yeah, absolutely. Um, Let's. Let's facilitate communication in the languages that people are actually comfortable communicating in and uh, I think you would see a much greater level of integration over time if people felt comfortable when they first arrived in a country.
2: I think this is a really interesting question because in relation to government services and agencies, there is... in in many of those agencies and for many of those services, actually the right available for people to um, request a a translator or an interpreter um, and for people to engage in a language other than English. Um, But I think what we see is the breakdown between the policy and the reality. Um, And it's interesting when you talk to people, particularly older people um, who are already struggling with navigating the bureaucracy um, and the struggles that they have to actually... Have that um, right that they have to an interpreter fulfilled, you know, and very often people will be told to come away or to use their son or daughter to interpret for them. So, I think that that um, that provision to some extent is there. It's just not enacted. It's just not put into practice. I think Jody's right. We could go much further, and we should think about both multiculturalism and being multilingual. Um, and when you're an English speaker, you can be very lazy. But I think it's it's sometimes the gap that, that's the problem and whether people can actually claim those services.
0: That's a brilliant question. Many thanks for that, Marie. Now, the next question is from Jonathan.
6: Do you think Australia will
3: have to make a China choice?
0: So that's a great question, Jonathan. Many thanks for that. So we went out and asked someone who has a really good perspective on this. Let's hear from Professor Richard Rigby from the Australian Centre on China
6: in the World. What's been asked is, uh, does Australia, will Australia have to face a China choice? Um, and the way that's phrased to start with is interesting. Will, I would argue that actually we are already making a China choice, but it's actually not a single choice. When people think about whether Australia has to make a China choice or not, it often comes down to will we in the end have to choose either for China or for the United States? I think if we find ourselves in that position though, we've probably already to some degree uh, failed in the task that uh, history and uh, geopolitics and geoeconomics has set us because every day we are making choices about china choices about the united states choices which should all be based on what we see as being most of all in australia's interests i think the context in we make these choices though is that whether we like it or not china is increasingly going to be part of our future and of course that does have an impact on where we attach importance uh, but it's, I think it's not a simple binary thing. The way in which I think we best deal with whether or not we have to make a China choice is by keeping our eyes fixed on what matters most to Australia in terms of our economic, our political, our strategic well-being underpinned by what we think are the most important values what makes Australia, Australia. And that means on a whole range of decisions, either on a day-to-day basis or on a on a long, more long-term basis, we have to keep all these things in mind. And in, if we do that, then we'll find on some occasions, clearly we need to be doing more with China. On other occasions, we'll need to be a bit critical about China. Then again, there'll be occasions when we need to be critical about the United States, sometimes perhaps more critical than we have, uh, have tended to be. Uh, but it's, again, I think if we ever find ourselves in this in where it's either one or the other, we probably have failed. But what is new is that we cannot escape the fact that for better or for worse, China is more and more a part of our future.
0: So there you go. Uh, You've heard what Richard Rigby had to say. What's your perspective on all this, Sharon?
2: I thought that was a great response from Richard. And of course, you would expect a, a great response from Richard on this. But I think those points he made about it not being a single choice, but a series of choices, but very importantly what is Australia's position on this? What is our vision for our place in the world, for the kind of society that we want? And how does that shape the way in which we engage with China? But how does that shape the way in which we engage with the world more broadly? Um. So I think that message from Richard is actually important in relation to China, but has much greater significance.
0: Terrific. Well, thanks again for that question, Jonathan, and thanks to Richard for the response there. So, the next bit we want to move on to is a bunch of questions which are all sort of broadly food related. We've got a surprising amount of food related questions. So, I'm going to do these quite quickly. The first was from Dot, who asked
1: uh, My question may seem like a trivial one, but it's actually of paramount importance. It's on the subject of quiche hot or cold?
0: Paul, what's your choice on quiche? Disco. Could you explain, please? I'm
3: oh, just eating a quiche in the disco. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I think that's really misguided, Paul. I'm just—I've got a terrible image in my mind. Sounds special, <laughs> doesn't it?
4: <laughs> Sounds messy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sounds really messy. Slippery. Yeah.
3: <laughs> okay, so Paul,
0: Paul is going to eat—is uh, going to eat it in a disco. Will it be hot or cold in the disco?
3: Uh, I don't know. Have to find out. I'll try it. I'll let you know. All
0: right. Depends so, on the weather. <laughs> depends on the weather. Okay, Jodie, hot or cold quiche? Both.
1: All the quiche, all the time.
0: Right. Okay. Sharon? Oh, cold quiche is disgusting. It has to be hot. <laughs> and Yulia?
1: I don't know why she's even
4: asking. Of course of course, it needs to be hot.
0: Right. Okay. So, all right. A bit of a mix around the table. Personally, I think the best way to serve quiche is into the bin. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, so, another question from Emily. Now, Emily asks, dinner party, what food are you going to bring along? But I want to turn that question around a bit. I want to put our panelists on the spot and say, throw in a dinner party. Each of you get to invite one person to that dinner party. Who are you going to invite? Sharon. Who is going to be your dinner party guest?
2: I'm going to cheat because I had three in mind off the top of my head. There were three. They're all dead. Um, <laughs> but, so the three, Mary Wollstonecraft, you know, the, the, the woman who wrote in the late 1700s around feminism. How interesting would that conversation to be? Nelson Mandela, who wouldn't want to have dinner with Nelson Mandela, and the great Lev Yashin. I can see the excitement on your faces. Goalkeeper for the Soviet Union in the late 1950s, early 1960s, brought a new way of playing in goals to the world. My choices.
0: Great. Uh, that's three fantastic guests. Jody, who are you going to bring to the table?
1: I do have to say that if it's just me and one other person, that's a date, not a dinner party. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but given that, I I'm still it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, your date's going to be a bit smelly. I'm sorry, uh, but I am still going to choose Michelle Obama because I love her and she is inspiring. And I've just been reading Becoming, and it was amazing. So I want to ask her a gazillion
0: questions about that. This is shaping up to be a pretty good dinner party. So So far, Paul, who are you bringing along with you?
3: Well, I'm going to copy Sharon's lead and invite more than one person. Uh, My objective here would be to bring the political ruckus, uh, particularly for the people of Kuyong. We've got a forthcoming election and I'd invite the four main candidates there. So they'd be Josh Frydenberg, Yana Stewart... Uh, Julian Burnside and Oliver Yates, I'd be a bit worried that they'd be a bit too friendly and and gentle and get along too well. Maybe we'd have a game of Scrabble beforehand or Twister maybe or something else just to create a little bit of tension and um, yeah.
2: What about Pizza Disco? Not pizza disco, quiche disco.
0: <laughs> who wouldn't want to see Josh Friedenberg playing Twister? That's With a quiche. Quiche. quiche, and, <laughs> and just <the> music playing. This <laughs> is shaping up to be actually a kind of a nightmare dinner party. But Julia, <laughs> who are you going to bring along?
4: I think the default for most people is to think about a famous person that they they bring along, but I think I would actually like to bring my sister, who Aww. is. One of the people I have the most respect for in my life, my sister's raising an autistic child, and I think she's got all the wisdom in the world sometimes to share on how to treat other people and how to treat people with disabilities and how to make them part of our lives, just as everyone else. And I think she would be a great dinner party guest to have, and also she's very funny. So I'd just love to have her around for that.
2: I think we probably all want to have dinner with your sister now, Julia.
4: She's amazing.
0: (laughs) She sounds terrific. So, all right, this is a fantastic dinner party. For what it's worth, I would bring along probably Ian Dunt, who is the editor of politics.co.uk. And I would bring him along because, number one, it would mean I would have someone there to talk to about Brexit because I know (laughs) none of you would talk to me about it. And number two, he would be the only person around the table who is more sweary than me. So, Is that possible? Is that possible. But, yeah, apparently so. All right. So great question there. Uh, Next uh, quick question. Mitzi asks, pineapple on pizza, yay or nay? Paul? Hawaiian, yes. Jodie?
1: Yay, because it's important that we innovate and change in
0: order to progress. You think pineapple on pizza is a sign of progress?
2: Okay. All right, Sharon. I love fresh pineapple. It should never go
0: on a pizza. Yeah, I'm with you totally, Yulia?
4: I'm all about innovation and new innovative toppings for pizza. But I feel like with pineapple, I'm kind of hitting my limit. That's too much. <laughs> it's just fresh. It? I agree, I with it, Sharon. Me. Fresh pineapple is fantastic. You should not put it on pizza. It's like warm avocado. It's disgusting.
0: Okay, and another pizza pizza topping related question: uh, sweet corn on pizza acceptable or otherwise. Now, I have very strong feelings about this. I'm a big fan of sweet corn on pizza. I know from our Facebook podcast group discussion this this week that Yulia is with me. She's also a fan of sweet corn on pizza. Sharon, you're sort of turning your nose up.
2: I don't think sweet corn ever belongs on a pizza, with one exception. I have a friend who makes fantastic sweet corn pizza. So
1: that's delicious, but otherwise it's a no-no.
0: Jodie, you've already said yes to pineapple. Yes. Are you going to say yes to sweet corn too?
1: I say yes to change and progress, <laughs> <laughs> Martin.
0: Okay, Paul, you're disco dancing with the quiche. Are you happy to have uh, sweet corn
3: on your pizza? Martin, I think that you can live your life however you want to. And I accept you for that. And I, <laughs> and I think sweet corn on pizza is fine. It's fine, man. It's, it's okay.
0: Well, th- thank you. I appreciate your acceptance. But that sort of sounds like
3: personally, you wouldn't do it. Yeah, sure. Uh, no, I'd do it. You know, I'm a pretty wild man. That's,
2: <laughs> That's the very Definitely very de- a wild man in that disco with the quiche. <laughs> the very
0: definition of wild is putting sweet corn on a pizza. All right, great. That's our food-related questions. And our final section is just some various kind of miscellaneous questions which we had. Now, the next is a slightly left-field one. I've got to say this, but Paul has suggested he has an answer to it. Now, it's a question from Sharon who wrote, who wrote, If you lose your wallet and it's not returned within a reasonable time, say, one week, is it then a stolen wallet? Said wallet lost, in air quotes, in a
3: known location. Paul, what's your response to this? Well, my interpretation of this question is that this has been written by Sharon the Wallet and Sharon the Wallet is currently lost in a known location. Now, my advice to Sharon the Wallet is that you can't be lost in a known location. The thing is you've got to reach inside yourself and find where it is that you want to be in the world and not rely on others to try and put you in some other place. So I think, Sharon, buy a map. Get off your Google Maps. They're just lying to you and um, you find your way in the world, and we support you.
2: Can I just point out that I am not actually Sharon the Wallet? But it's good (laughs) advice, Paul, and I think I'll take it.
3: (laughs) Does
0: anyone have any further advice for Sharon, either as Sharon the question asker or as Sharon the Wallet?
2: I, I think I overthought this question. I couldn't work out if it was a legal question or a philosophical question, and at that point I just went down a cycle of confusion. So... I'm just going to go with Paul's advice as another Sharon who is not a wallet and take that advice about what I want from the world.
0: Well, I I really (laughs) hope you found that useful, Sharon. I'm (laughs) I'm sure sure you have. Um, Our advice is uh, if you're after legal advice, you certainly won't get it here. So, Okay, the final question I want to tackle, I think this is a a lovely question, and it's from Laura who asks – What's a thing you do in your life that you wish you had started much earlier? I'm going to turn to you first, Julia. What's a thing you do in your life that you wish you had started much earlier?
4: Well, until I was 24, I didn't leave my hometown in northern Germany much. So I started traveling quite late. And I have quite a few regrets about not doing an exchange semester during my bachelor's degree. So I can only really encourage people, if you ever want to travel and if you want to immerse yourself into in, in other cultures and learn another language, that's the best way to do it. And don't wait for it to happen, but go for it as early as you possibly can because the younger you are, the easier it is to immerse yourself and the easier it is to actually master a second language. It's the most useful thing that you can do.
0: There you go. So travel and learning a second language. Sharon, what's the thing that you do in your life that you wish you had started much earlier?
2: Yeah, For me, this is a really easy answer. And similarly to to Julia, learning languages other than English. How many languages do you speak? Uh, English. (laughs) Just the one. I speak some Indonesian. I speak it really badly because I started to learn it um, as an adult. And so I've never gained the level of fluency that I would like. And my vocabulary is really kind of constrained by the things that I do with the language. Um, So I'd love to be able to speak it fluently. My husband speaks fluent Croatian. Um, and that's a beautiful language. I would love to be able to speak that fluently. I can give directions and I can swear, and that's a very useful thing in a marriage, but it would be great to be able to speak it fluently. And there are many languages um, that I'd like to speak. I lived in Norway for a while and tried to pick up some Norwegian, but in Norway everyone speaks English so well that I would just give up and slip back into English. So speaking any other language but several fluently, I would love to be able to do.
0: So great. Another vote there for language. What about you, Jodie? What is it that you do in your life that you wish you'd started much earlier?
1: I really wasn't sure what I was going to say for this one. And then Paul started giving Sharon the wallet advice. And I realized that I too need to reach deep into myself and stop letting other people push me around, put away the Google Maps. It's lying to me. And I need to stand up for myself more. And I wish I had started doing that earlier.
0: Standing up for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. That's a that's a good response. Quite right too. And Paul,
3: what about you? Well, there's this dance move I quite like doing. It's called um it's called the spinning knee drop. And what you do is you jump up into the air, you land on your knee, but very lightly, and then you do it and then you do a 360 degree spin. The problem is is that I'm in my mid 30s, and let's be honest, I'm a larger man now than I used to be in my early 20s. And I feel like if I'd started doing it earlier, my bones just would have, I don't know, developed a bit more resistance or strength to manage the impact.
2: Or they would have shattered, Paul, one or the other. Oh, that, this sounds <laughs> like a very
0: be. painful dance move. I mm. can't
4: even imagine it. I'm trying to put the movements together in my head, but it doesn't really seem to make sense. Yeah, you sense. need to
3: have a couple of rums first and then it just happens. <laughs>
4: I'm thinking the quiche on the disco floor would help with this
2: move,
0: Paul. Yeah, yeah, you land in it.
4: Make it nice and slippery.
0: Just how good are you at this uh, this move, Paul? Pretty good, man. (laughs) Will you do a demonstration for our Facebook podcast group? No. (laughs) (laughs)
4: That's so sad. (laughs) That
0: is such a shame. That is such a shame. Well, thank you for your answers around the table. Some great responses there. Um, For what it's worth, I think the thing that... uh, I do in my life that I wish I'd started much earlier, um, I'm going to go in a completely different direction and say gardening because I actually really enjoy it. I find it incredibly therapeutic to just watch stuff grow, to make stuff grow, to be out there with your hands in the dirt, uh, to be out there in the sunshine. I would never have thought that I would be that person. So there you go. Learn a language. Do some gardening. Stand up for yourself. And be very wary about dance moves. <laughs> so great. Some fantastic uh, answers there. And thank you to everybody who has submitted questions. We really appreciate them. Some, some really terrific stuff. Thank you to all of our panelists today. Thank you, Neil.
1: Thanks, man.
0: Thank you, Sharon.
1: Thanks, Martin. It was fun.
0: Jody, it's fantastic
3: having you here. Thank you for coming on.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: And
3: Paul. Thanks, Martin. Happy days.
0: So, and thanks once again to you listeners for submitting your questions. Rem- a reminder to you to jump in and join our Facebook podcast group. Just go to Facebook, type in uh, policy for a pod in the search bar and you'll find us there. Uh, And if you enjoyed today's episode, then perhaps you might want to leave us a quick review on iTunes. It'll only take 30 seconds or so. All you need to do is find that fifth star, click on that, be a huge help to us in getting the word out about this podcast. So that draws us to the end of our 100th episode. I would like to thank Everybody who's been involved with putting the podcast together across our last 100 episodes, the people in the room here have made a huge contribution to her. Um, But the people who have also moved on to other things, I think particularly of Edwina or Nikki, Maya. It's fantastic, the contribution that they've made over time. But also, I would like to say a huge thanks to everyone who listens and gets in contact with us. We really appreciate it. We're very focused on uh, getting your comments, getting your thoughts, getting your feedback on what it is that we're doing. And it's uh, hugely reassuring to us and uh, pleasing that so many of you do get in contact on a regular basis to let us know what you think about the podcast. So please do keep doing that. And here's to another 100 episodes. So we'll be back next week. I'm just
2: going to jump in and cut Martin off like that to say, Martin, thank you to you. None of this would happen without the incredible commitment and hard work and building of networks and bringing together of people that you make happen. So thank you.
4: Yeah.
0: Well, thank you. That's very nice of you. I really appreciate that. So thank you once again to everyone in the room and thank you once again to everyone listening. We'll be back next week with another Policy Forum pod. But until then, from me, Martin Pearce, cheerio.